Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Wiley Society podcast. I'm your host, Anna Ehler, and in this episode, we're returning again to the issue of data policies. Last month, we heard from a panel of societies representing several different subject communities and learned about the wide range of experiences they're having with data archiving, what data actually means to them, an ecologist's data is very different from a geographer's data, and what their guidance is around what to do with it, how to make it available, where to make it available, and how to actually make it reusable. This month, we're going to return to that panel at the 2017 Society Executive Seminar in London and look more deeply at some of the practical decisions different subject communities are making around data archiving. Remember Professor Peter Diggle, former president of the Royal Statistical Society? While statistics may be further along than some other fields in recognizing the importance of access to data, there is still work to be done, according to Peter, in making it not just accessible, but also reusable. I think, uh, to me, a fundamental distinction is the scenario I described with our journal biostatistics was really to enable one statistician to know, A, that the results in the paper were technically correct on their own terms, and B, how robust they were to minor changes in protocol. And for that purpose, data can be essentially, you know, fairly spartan uh, with minimal documentation. But if you actually want data to be, to create data that's of value in its own right, then the metadata and, and the quality control issues and the guarantee of stability and so on are much more important. And that's a much more ambitious undertaking because of obviously the, the time and dedication that's involved. And I don't think our community, our statistics community, yet values sufficiently the creation of high-quality data sets that have been appropriately curated and documented and um, to, to sort of make many statisticians feel that's a worthwhile mm. you know, part of their effort. We're, we're getting much better at people acknowledging that if, if they simply produce a, th- a theory without the means to implement it, nobody will care and it will not be used. But, but actually creating high-quality data sets is a lot of work and it takes a lot of resource and it's, it's not, I think, yet... Uh, very highly valued within the statistics community. The statistics community certainly isn't alone in asking whether the data that's made available is truly useful. Curating high-quality data sets does take a lot of work, as Peter said. But we have to start somewhere, so how can we begin to make the data that is available more useful? Catherine Hill, head of publications at the British Ecological Society, had a few ideas. I think journal mandates can go so far Um, but all we can do is, at a very late stage in the process, encourage people to archive a subset of their data. Um, And that's not really going going far enough. And I think, well, personally, I think that needs to come at a much earlier stage. So I think funders, institutions, need to properly recognise the value of that data. Um, I don't know quite how they do that, but Mm -hmm. I, I definitely think publishers and societies and journals can, can only really intervene at a very late stage. So I think that's too late to do a really effective job of that. And I think, you know, by the time we get into the 2020s, whatever that might look like. So Catherine is arguing that in order to ensure that data underlying published research is useful, we need to go right to the root of that research. In other words, to the body funding the research. Here's Peter again. I think indeed, that's right. That, that the, it seems to me that the, you've really got to tackle the issue right at the root. And of course, the research councils in, in many ways are now making it much more, an, at least an expectation, that research that's publicly funded 
generates useful data, those data have to be made available. Yeah. And, and I think that's the right way to do it because it's, in a sense, it's sort of too late by the time somebody's writing up a paper for publication. There is still a lot of scope for journals to do more on, on what I would call the kind of low-tech end of data availability, but for really high-quality, trustworthy data that can genuinely add novel information by other people analysing it anew, I think you've got to tackle it at source. So funders taking a bigger role may certainly increase the value placed on research data, but it's still one thing for funders to mandate and another for high-quality data to happen in practice. Fundamentally, this means a change in behavior within the research community. Are mandates really enough to make that change? Here's Chris George, senior editor for the British Journal of Pharmacology. I think one of the issues which is central to this is the enthusiasm from the people that are generating the data to making that available. And so there's a huge amount of attrition in the data gathering process that you have all of these observations and all of these permutations that from your own area of expertise are distilled and skewed into various directions. And sometimes people miss the bigger picture because they've gone at it with a pre-configured idea of we're looking for a change, a change has happened there and so that's what I'm looking for. Um, but the issue from, from the sort of biologist's perspective is that there is so much going on, is that how do you archive and how do you curate those huge, full-to-bursting lab books of anecdotes and notes, and it didn't quite work when I re wore red socks. And you know, that could be the fundamental finding, that actually you do need to wear red socks to get this process to work, and that is the key ingredient. That's the Nobel Prize-winning sort of factor but how on earth do you reproduce that? How do you convince people that, that that truly is what should be the important factor of the data set? Chris raises a good question. The most detailed policy in the world still might miss the key ingredient for making a finding reproducible. And yet there is growing recognition from funders and within subject area communities that it's important to at least begin to tackle that challenge. And the first step is probably not to simply put out a data archiving policy. Here's how the British Ecological Society went about it. So I think in terms of the process, um, a lot of the process had happened before the policy was actually formed and written. Um, I think there was a meeting of um, a group of ecology editors and I think um, editors within evolutionary biology as well um, that brought together some really key um, leading people in the field and discussed the issue of data sharing and discussed what, what could be done as a community. And I think... That came across very strongly when I joined the BES that we hadn't made the decision yet to implement the policy, but that it was a, a decision that was being taken by the community. It wasn't something that was led by a publisher or by the society in its publishing role. It was being led by the community. Having said that, we had to make the decision to do it. And while the community would say a lot of the community were behind it, a lot of the community weren't behind it, and a lot of our editors weren't behind it, and were very vocal about not being behind it and having lots of fears about not getting proper credit, about work being scooped, about journal submissions you know, falling off the face of the earth, nobody would submit to our journals. Um, I have to say none of that happened. Um, our journal submissions have continued to grow year on year. It's had no effect on those. I think we've made the process as simple as we possibly can. So we are integrated with Dryad, which means authors effectively get an email from them after their paper is at a kind of submit, um, sorry, accept stage. So the process is as easy as we can possibly make it. We also allow them to archive in a repository of their choice. So we don't say, you must archive in the BES repository or this, you know, one place. 
So I think we've done what we can to make it as easy as possible. Um, and I think it's, it's two different things. It's one, it's the community being at a stage where you can feel confident enough to make that first move. But it's also the society and the journals being able to have the confidence to do it. Because I, I think while a community can be behind you to a certain extent, somebody's got to move first. We're a long way from getting it right within the BES. You know, the data that we do have um, deposited is not thoroughly checked. It's not thoroughly policed. We don't check its reusability. Um, we don't have huge numbers of downloads of those data sets, so people aren't using it on a really regular basis. Um, and there's definitely more we could do. And if we'd worried about all of that right at the start, which I think we did initially, um, then I don't think we'd have done anything. And I think we'd still be having the same discussions now about how do we actually archive ecological data? What metadata do we need? What are the standards that the community should set? Um, and so we're constantly evolving that and constantly trying to think about how we um, need to make the policy better, how we need to make the standards and the guidelines um, clearer. Um, so I think take little steps rather than think this is the absolute end goal we want to reach. We've got to do that now. So somebody's got to move first. Take little steps. And as Catherine described, it's important to be prepared for concerns and pushback, even from the very community that's calling for the change. How are they doing it in other disciplines? Here's another perspective from Chris George. So I think from the British Journal of Pharmacology's perspective, given the thousands of variables that you deal with in a biological experiment, we focused on the ones that were really important. Um, and we put together an 18-point declaration that every author that submits a publication to us has to declare that it conforms within reasonable margins with one of these 18 points. So, for example, if you're using an animal in your research, you declare where you got it from, its age, its weight, its sex, its likely genetic heritability, and that then becomes a sort of uh, a kite mark that yeah. that study has at least gone through that level of invariability. To start with, the authors really didn't like conforming to 18 points that they had to tick off that their study conformed to. But now in the, in the community, it's being seen as a sort of badge, a, a marquee badge, that their studies conform to this level of rigor. There's obviously a lot of nuance here, and every discipline has its own concerns about and its own need for good, high-quality data. Changing the behavior and expectations of authors is a critical part of that process. And as Chris described, adhering to new standards can become a sort of badge of accomplishment in the field. Here are some other ways that data archiving can be encouraged. That information that societies can provide is very valuable. And those kind of the, the guidance from data management right from the start of the research process so that early career researchers um, or everybody, all researchers, are thinking about this earlier in the process so that when they come to write up their paper or publish, they're not having to find their data sets, find their lab notebooks and think, I, had no, you know, I didn't think about what colour socks, I didn't remember I should you know, note that down. But they've got that all you know, in there from the start. I think that's quite an important thing that societies can do, so that training and the guidance. Mm. Um, and further to that, actually, you know, we mentioned earlier that funders are increasingly recognising the value of data. But I went to a talk quite recently from somebody um, at NERC, and they were saying, actually, nobody ever puts in their impact statement that they've published their data and this is the value it's had. So researchers, even though funders are saying they recognise it, they, they do see the value in this, researchers aren't kind of bridging that gap. So either more work needs to be done at the kind of institutional and funder level to 
um, educate their researchers, or again, societies need to educate their researchers, offer advice on what kind of information might be useful to put in, in your ref statement, you know, in your impact statement, um, and how data could be a part of that. A very young colleague of mine recently expressed outrage that he'd asked, um, it might have been a biologist, it might have been a sociologist, I can't remember, if they could use their data in a publication, and they'd said no. And I said, well, did you offer them co-authorship? He said, well, why should I do that? <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and if, if, in fact, a biologist gets their primary publication in a biology journal, but then can actually get a secondary publication that they wouldn't otherwise have had yeah. by showing that their data actually allowed some new statistical insights to be drawn, then there's a very positive incentive for the author. Data sharing promotes collaboration between disciplines. It also co promotes collaboration within disciplines in the sense that if you're addressing a substantive question and you're not thinking of that as an isolated question that you attach in a linear way, but you're talking about assimilating information, then finding shareable data that you can check through its metadata to be of high quality and forging that as a new collaborative link is mutually beneficial. So going back to your point about benefits, if you make good quality data available with appropriate uh, safeguards for confidentiality, etc., you, you can enhance your own research profile and your own visibility in the research community, and it can genuinely, more importantly, enhance the science. And enhancing the science, as Peter says, is really where all of this started in the first place. Data sharing is fundamentally about enabling innovation. The execution isn't nearly as straightforward as we might wish it to be, but there are immensely significant benefits, not just to the author, as Peter described, but to entire subject communities and society as a whole, if it's done properly. Many societies are leading the way on the data archiving front, and I hope this episode has sparked some ideas or at least help you feel less alone in dealing with the intricacies of data sharing. I hope you'll join us again next month. Until then, I'm Anna Ayler. Our editorial advisory group includes Alexa Dugan, David Nicholson, Sarah Phibbs, Mark Robertson, and Nielsen Turner. Our theme music for this episode was provided by Jason Shaw and edited by Dennis Velasco. You can listen to other episodes and learn when new episodes are released by subscribing to the Wiley Society podcast in iTunes. You can also sign up for our mailing list to learn more about what's happening at Wiley and other news and trends in research publishing by going to exchanges.wiley.com societies.